Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. We are in the middle of a series that we're calling The Answer, where we're studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. And this has been a good time thus far. We've uh, been able to see that the church of Corinth kind of dealt with some of the similar things that we have dealt with in our city. Their city is a lot like our city. So we looked at some of the problems that they had. We're like, whoa, that looks like some of the problems we had. So we're looking to this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church to see if some of their solutions can be our solutions. And my hope today that we will see the same thing that we've seen for the past seven weeks, that the gospel is the answer for every every single problem that we face, as I said, at the end of worship. So my hope is that. Now today in chapter seven, this is where the tone of Paul's letter begins to change ever so slightly, where he begins to answer the very specific questions that the church of Corinth wrote to him about. And I love this because we start to see a little bit of Paul's pastoral heart and his experience in leading the church as he begins to give them some wise advice, a lot of wise advice. Because in this chapter, if you've read it, you'd know that it's a bit extensive. It's one of the longer chapters in this book, in this, or in this letter. And it covers singleness to marriage, to divorce, to widows. There's even a reference to circumcision and slavery in here. There's a lot packed into this. And we did not decide through this series that we were going to give multiple weeks to each chapter. So that means I had to take this chapter and choose what is it that I'm going to talk about. And I've decided this morning that the most relevant thing for me to discuss is about circumcision. You think I'm joking? No, I'm joking. But maybe another time. Instead, today... I think that the most relatable and helpful thing that we can look at is how Paul talks about both marriage and singleness. Because you're either married in the room or you're single. You're in one of those two categories. Now really quick, I wanna give a bit of a disclaimer because I know you might be married or single in the room, but you may also have experienced something else that Paul addresses in this letter and that's divorce. Now, this is a bit of a polarizing topic in the church. People get kind of awkward around this subject. They get a little nervous. And this is a very important thing that we should pay attention to. We want to know what the word says about everything that we experience, even divorce. But because it is such a complex topic, and because I'm sensitive to your heart, I didn't want to just pepper that in and not truly give it the time that it is due. So this isn't an avoidance of that subject. In fact, I want to equip you because hopefully you've decided to read and study this letter along with us, and I want to resource you. So when you go home, you can uh, go to our app, or if you don't have our app, you can download it. And what we've done is on our resource page, you will find a sermon that we have linked on the topic of divorce. And listen, he probably preaches it far better than I could. So if you'd like, check that out. Now, although Paul um, explores many of these different topics, you know, It's extensive. There is one thing that Paul focuses in on with every single topic, and that is this. He focuses in on commitment. 
When he addresses everything from singleness to the potential of divorce, his focus remains the same. And specifically, whatever season you find yourself in, Paul knows that we have a tendency, that human nature is such that we can find ourselves dissatisfied with the current season we're in. We're always looking to the next season to go, well, that's when I'll be satisfied. That's when I'll find satisfaction. The purpose of this chapter is for us to take our eyes off of what's next and to become fiercely committed to what's now. So if you're taking notes today, you can write this title down that is also a question. Am I committed? Am I committed? Now, with that said, let's look at what it is that Paul says within these chapters of singleness and marriage. Little baby disclaimer for you. We're gonna talk about marriage, so we're gonna talk about some married people things this morning. So if there are certain conversations you haven't had with your children yet, and they're sitting next to you, and you don't want to talk to them about certain topics about marriage this afternoon, then uh, I'm just warning you, okay? Might be setting you up for a great conversation over dinner. Okay, who's ready to listen up? Okay, I had, the, I had the last service do this. I'm sure you had your caffeine, but while I drink water, you clap because I'm about to read a whole bunch of scripture to you. Just give yourself a clap. Give yourself a hand. All right, let's dive in, folks. It says this, now regarding the question you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. All the married people said, there you go, and I have to tell you. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to ref refrain from sexual intimacy for a period of time so that you can give yourself more completely to prayer. But afterwards, y'all should come back together so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish that everyone were single just as I am, yet each, yet each person has a gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried, just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, then they should go ahead and get married. It's better to marry than burn with lust. Okay, five more verses. Now, regarding your question about the young women who are not married yet, I do not have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted, and I will share it with you. Because of the present crisis, I think it's best to remain as you are. If you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it's not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it's also not a sin. However, those who get married at this time, you're gonna have some troubles. I'm trying to spare you from these problems. <laughs> Lastly, Paul concludes with, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life as an unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking of how to please him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word, and we pray that our hearts would be open to the specific things that you want to tell each and every one of us. Amen. Amen. 
I want to start out by directing our attention to, that, uh, to a word that Paul uses to describe both seasons of singleness and marriage. And that word is gift. He says, yet each person has a special gift from God. Paul says that marriage is a gift. Paul says that singleness is a gift. Today, if you are sitting next to your spouse, I want you to take a moment and I want you to turn to them and say, honey, you are a gift. Go ahead. Honey, baby cakes, you are a gift. I don't know. Now you have a new pet name. All right, now married people, be quiet. If you are single in the room, who, yeah, that's right, girl. You better shout this loud and be proud. I want you to say with all boldness and a little bit of attitude, I'm a gift. Oh, so much better than a nine o'clock. I love it. Now, somebody's confidence was boosted. Where's all my words of affirmation, people? You're like, yes, I am. Now, when Paul talks about marriage as a gift and singleness as a gift, he doesn't say that one gift is better than the other. Each gift is different. Each gift is unique and purposeful. But Paul says that both of these gifts are from God. In fact, the word that is used here for gift is the same word that's used in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when it speaks of all the spiritual gifts. We'll get that to that in a few weeks. But when he says these gifts are from God, if they're from God, then that means that they are good. And Paul is, he says here in this chapter, if you're single, it's good. And then in Genesis 2, the first book in the Bible, we hear God say that marriage is good. So today, if I were to ask a single person to describe their singleness, my guess is that you wouldn't describe your singleness as a gift. I've heard some describe it as lonely. I've heard others even describe it as a curse. And now, if you're married in the room, as much as you might want your spouse to say that you are a gift, it might not be the first thing that comes to their mind in describing your marriage. But maybe at the end of this sermon today, we can all view our singleness or our marriage a bit differently. At least that's my hope as Paul shows us what these gifts look like. So we're going to start out today, we're going to break this up into sections and start out first with marriage as Paul addresses it. Married people, are you ready to listen up? Here's the deal too, I just have to say this. Nine o'clock was a little like, what? You're talking about a lot of married people things. I'm getting kind of nervous and I haven't had my coffee yet. But y'all are the rowdy bunch. Y'all had your, no, you're not. You're quiet. Are you quiet? Or are you rowdy? Rowdy, okay. All right, you had your espresso shot this morning. So don't get awkward. Just dive in with me, shall we? All right. Paul says this. Now, regarding the question you asked in your letter, yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So we can't read this 
portion of scripture, this chapter, without keeping chapter six in mind. What did chapter six tell us? It told us all about the sexual immorality that was going on. There were a bunch of people that were casting off moral restraint. And so we see that others in the church, they kind of had the pendulum swing the other side. They're like, if they're casting off moral restraint, then we're gonna, we're gonna institute moral severity. So they write Paul this letter and they're like, hey, do you think that maybe we should just tell everyone to stop having sex? Like, of course, you know, single people don't do it, but we should probably tell the married people not to have sex too. That was their logical response. Now that seems kind of preposterous to us reading this letter today, but in their day and age, it wasn't so odd for them to suggest this because there were philosophies at the time that people were like saying, hey, if you are single, you should remain celibate, but if you're married, you should refrain from having sexual relations with your spouse. And the reason being that it taught that this was a new way of depth and personal holiness and spiritual maturity. So this wasn't an odd suggestion. So the leaders are like, this might be the answer, Paul, should we do this? But Paul doesn't respond to this group of people and say, yes, that's what you should do. He says, hey, single people, yes, refrain from sexual immorality, but married people, y'all should have sex. That's what Paul said. He says the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. The wife gives authority of her body over to her husband and vice versa. Don't deprive one another of sexual relations. Paul is referencing Genesis 2 here where it says that a man should leave his father and his mother and he should cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Paul repeats it even in chapter 6, and the truth was that he was reminding them of the truth truth that was established at the beginning of time. But two do not become one flesh by a priest saying, all right, go, there you go, or a declaration or a commitment to one another. No, two become one flesh by having sex. Gosh, I'm just going to keep saying the word sex, and you're going to keep getting more and more awkward, and you're like, why do you keep saying it? And I'm in church. This would be a holy place. I'm so happy to let you in on being awkward with me this morning. It's going to be fun. Buckle up. Now, sex is not the only important thing in marriage. You also need love and trust and mutual respect. You need good communication and friendship and partnership. You need all of those things. You should be saying yes and amen. You should be elbowing your wife or husband and saying yes and amen. We need all of that. But y'all, we also need sex. Permission to get even more awkward, shall we? Should I get even more honest on a Sunday? Are you ready? We're going to pass out espresso shots. It's going to be great. See, it's alarming to me when I talk to certain Christian couples who, a, a, a woman who will come to me for counsel on her marriage, and she'll tell me that she and her husband only have sex like once a month. Or even more alarming when they say that we have sex even less than that. But the truth is that sex inside of marriage should not be an obligation. It should not be a burdensome requirement. And sex inside of marriage, newsflash, is not just for procreation. God's the one who created sex and he made your body. And he says that inside of a marriage, it is good. And he calls it holy. Did you know that when two become one flesh inside of a marriage and they have sex, it's actually a way that you can glorify and honor and worship God? I didn't say put worship music on while you had sex. I said, it is a way that you can worship God in a unique way. I got to make you laugh a little so that awkwardness leaves. 
But sex inside of marriage is one of the greatest ways that you can unify with your spouse. Not only is it a way that you can glorify God, but I think it's an opportunity for us to punch the enemy in the face, saying what God brought together, no one can separate, not even you. But when couples refrain from having sex, it's as if they take the keys to their marriage and they toss them to the enemy and they say, come on in, steal, kill, destroy, divide. But when we come together in unity, in consistency, what we're doing is not just glorifying God, but we're saying, enemy, you cannot bring a wedge between me and my spouse. So application point number one, if you are married, have more sex. You're welcome. Now, here's the deal. Paul's a bit more tactful, but just as bold when he says in verse five, do not deprive each other of sexual relations. As we were reminded last week, our body is not our own. It's first and foremost, it, it belongs to God. But secondarily, if you are married, it belongs to your spouse. It says that the wife has authority over her husband's body and the husband has authority over the wife's body. Now, in the time of this letter being written, this is a striking declaration that Paul makes. What he's showing us here is that we have mutual equality in marriage in this way. Come on, all the feminists say, amen. Okay, they're not in this room. It's okay, I'll just do it. They, between husband and wife, we have a mutual equality. And because of that, it means that sex in marriage is not abuse. It is not a demand for needs to be met. These are not power plays or behaviors of withholding. Instead, it is a beautiful picture of mutual submission to one another. And the theologian Kenneth Bailey says this in regards to this portion of scripture. He says, the material relationship is presented as a positive right that each partner is expected to give as a gift to the other. The husband and the wife are equal in this regard. Neither partner is to demand those rights. Rather, each is to give gifts to the other. Gifts given in love are always seen by the giver as valuable. Otherwise, they would not be given. Furthermore, by definition, a gift is always offered as a result, as a result of free choice. If it is coerced, it is not a gift. It's beautiful. Now, I'm sensitive this morning to the fact that there's some people in the room who have some complex situations you're walking through when it comes to your sexuality. I'm sensitive to the fact that some of you have experienced abuse, you've experienced the brokenness of pornography, you've experienced shame. So I'm sensitive that this is a difficult topic to suggest, like just go have more sex, because some of you have walked through some really difficult things. But if we're not careful, we can allow the brokenness of our past begin to sabotage our future of what God really wants us to walk out in, in this beautiful union he calls this one flesh between husband and wife. So I'm sensitive to that. But I also know that you get to make a decision of am I gonna allow it to sabotage me and hold me back or am I gonna walk out in freedom? And I wanna encourage you and invite you to just take a little baby step forward and say, I'm gonna make a commitment to walk out in this. 
But here's the deal, you shouldn't have to walk out in that alone. Guess what? You've got a partner. I think one of the greatest gifts you can give your spouse if you know that they have sexual brokenness that they need to work through and they need healing in is to say, hey, you don't have to walk through it by yourself. I'm gonna walk through it with you. Because the truth of the matter is you're one flesh. So I'm sorry, but her problems are actually your problems. And his victories are your victories. So we should be walking through it together anyway. And furthermore, let's remind ourselves of the chief responsibility we have as followers of Jesus. It's to serve and not to be served. And that applies to our spouse. Not to think of my needs and my desires and how can they be met, but to every day wake up and say, how can I serve my spouse today? Oh, what can I do to serve? In fact, let me just take it a step further. If you're married, then your first ministry should be your marriage. A lot of people don't think of their marriage as a ministry. Instead, you know, they're like, well, serving the poor is a ministry or serving in kids' church. But in fact, if you are married, your chief responsibility beyond serving your spouse is that your marriage should be your ministry. That should be what we're focusing on first and foremost. We see this in Ephesians 5 where Paul says, a man leaves his father and mother and he's joined to his wife and the two are to become one. This is the great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each must love his wife as he loves himself, and a wife must respect her husband. Marriage is the earthly picture of a heavenly relationship. Marriage is supposed to display what true intimacy with Christ looks like. And your marriage can be one of the greatest illustrations to the watching world of how Christ loves his church. Your marriage is not just for personal gratification. It's to display the mystery of God to people. Now, part of mine and Tim's calling, part of our ministry, is that God's called us to pastor this church. But the first thing that God calls Tim and I to do, the first ministry, is our marriage. It doesn't matter what gifting we have, whether it's preaching, teaching, leading, serving, whatever it looks like, none of those things matter. All of those things will be unhealthy if this first ministry is not healthy. It's the reason why I don't respond to your texts and your phone calls on Monday. Mondays are my day off, they're my Sabbath. It's my time with Jesus, but it's also my time to work on this first ministry. It's why we date each other. Yeah, you can clap for that. It's why anytime grandparents say, hey, can we take the kids? We say yes and amen. Why? Because in order for anything else to be healthy, this must be healthy. This is priority. Now, as we conclude this section today, at the beginning of this, I said that this entire chapter could be summed up as commitment. So I ask you this question today if you're married. Are you committed to this gift of marriage that's been given to you. You know, are you committed to calling it a gift? <laughs> are you committed, no matter how good it looks or bad it looks, are you committed to this gift that God has given you? Or are you squandering it? Or are you ignoring and neglecting it? I pray today that this wouldn't just be a point that you're like, great, here's my notes. But I pray this would sink deep in our hearts and as couples, we'd go home and we'd make a commitment 
maybe one that we've needed to make for quite some time. So I ask you that today. All right, married people, I'm done with you now, okay? Moving on. Single people's turn. Because Paul goes on in verse 8, and he says, So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried, just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, then they should go ahead and get married. It's better to marry than burn with lust. The beginning of this, Paul says that this season of singleness isn't just good. He says it's better. <laughs> now to pry a li- bit more into the cultural context, we, if we, if we kind of understood in a, the unpacking of this, how striking Paul's statement is here. Because for Paul, in this day and age when he wrote this, he would have been looked down upon for being single. As a Jewish man, not only would he get looked down upon, but some in that Jewish practice in religion would call what Paul was doing as a single man a sin. And so Paul kind of says this, hey, it's better. And this completely clashed in the face of Jewish culture. But I'd say it also clashes in the face of our culture. Because there are influence both inside and outside the church that encourage people not to remain single, but to find a mate and make it official. And outside the church, we see examples of this, of like, did you, okay, did you go to the right school? Did you get the right career and degree? And like, what's your life look like? Do you have, do you have a good car? How, are you established? You got your 401k? Okay, you're building up retirement and you've got the, and what about spouse? Did you find the girl? Did you find the guy? Like, there's just this expectation that we're going to do all of these things. But I would say inside the church, the pressure and the expectation for finding a companion and settling down in marriage is even more extreme. We said, we've said again and again that the problems of their day are the same as the problems as our day. So the church leaders at the time, they taught, hey, one of the greatest ways for you as a single person to stay away from sexual sin is to get married. And Paul says that right here in the midst of this letter that we're reading today. But that same advice has remained the same. Well, if, you, if you're lusting after ladies, if you're lusting after, you should just find a mate and go have sex with them. It's, this is how we work it out. This is what we should do. So are you planning on getting married? Do you want to get married? When are you going to get married? Why aren't you married? That's the mentality that we've seen inside the church, this focus on marriage, this extreme focus. But because of this mentality, it's caused the church to look at singleness as a bad thing. Can I take a moment this morning and apologize to the single people in our community? If we from this platform or in any other way have made you feel less than or left out or like you haven't arrived or achieved because you're still single, that behavior is completely inappropriate. Not only do I say, I'm sorry, but as your pastor, I say, I want to change that in this community. Because I don't want to shun you. I want to celebrate you. I want to champion you. I want to support you in this season of singleness. No matter how long or matter how short, I want to support you. I want to walk with you. You know, it's been an honor and a privilege to get to know some of the single people in our community And some who have made a commitment, hey, I might even be single forever. Can we just talk about a lonely road that they sometimes walk? It's been an honor to walk with these people and to see their commitment to Christ, to say, 
I'm willing to remain celibate. I'm going to deny my flesh. I'm going to lay down my sexual desires, and I'm going to make a commitment to Christ. Whether that's a short season or not. Yeah, you can clap for that. I think that this is one of the greatest pictures of commitment and devotion to Jesus that I have ever seen portrayed. I think it's one of the greatest ways of sacrifice that I have ever seen. So we shouldn't shun them for it, we should celebrate them. Because Paul says it's not just good, but it's better. Why? It's better because their devotion isn't divided. They're able to take all their time and all of their resources and all of their gifting and say, I'm committing it all to Jesus. They don't have a companion or children and responsibility in those regards so they can take their whole life. But not only are they walking in the footsteps of Paul, they're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. So today, let's honor them. Can I say thank you for walking that out in the way that you are? Now, I know that there are some people in our community who may remain single and celibate potentially for their whole life. But I also know that there's those of you in the room who are single yet still desire marriage. So don't worry, I haven't left you out here because Paul addresses this part to you. Verse 25, he says, now regarding your question about young women who are not married yet, I don't have a command from the Lord for them. But the Lord in his mercy, he's given me wisdom that can be trusted, and I will share it with you. Because of the present crisis, I think it's best to remain as you are. Paul says, because of the present crisis, I think it's a good idea for you to remain single. Now this is again where context is important for us to truly understand what Paul is saying here. Now, back in that time, many uh, girls were kind of pledged, the parents would, would arrange marriages and they might be pledged to an individual. Long before engagement, they would have plans for this. And beyond that, uh, we see something that Paul refers to as a present crisis. Now, this is where we have to pay attention because I think what Paul is saying, he's responding to a very practical part of their question. Is He's addressing what's happening in the context of their community. Paul refers to this present crisis, uh, and he's most likely referring to a food shortage in the land at the time. So Paul most likely left Corinth in 51 A.D., And right around that time and just a few years afterwards, which would be the exact time period between his leaving and his writing of this letter, there was believed to be a severe shortage of grain, which was the very most basic type of food in Greece. And as we learned in chapter 1, if we went back, we see that there's evidence that most of this community was poor. The first chapter, verse 26, it points this out to us. So we know if there is a food shortage and crisis, then most of this community is probably being affected by it. So Paul is giving very practical advice here. He's saying, hey, if you don't have enough food to feed yourself right now, why would you get married? Because if you get married, you're probably going to have kids, and then you won't have enough food to feed your children. Really practical here. So... Paul is reminding them as well in verse 28, those who get married, these times you're going to have troubles and I'm trying to spare you of those problems because Paul knows that marriage is hard enough and all the married people said, amen. (laughs) 
Now, if you're single in the room, how do you apply this to your life? Let me translate this for you. Because I think that in some sense, a decision to get married has to be very practical. Yes, of course, you need to love and be devoted to someone. But I think that there's a whole lot of people, especially young people, that rush into marriage before asking themselves some very practical questions. And I want you to write this down if you're single and you want to get married. A good question to ask yourself is, am I eligible for marriage? Am I eligible? Can you support one another? Can you actually afford to get married? And I'm not saying can you afford to throw a beautiful party called a wedding, but can you afford the marriage part after the wedding? I'm not saying can you afford to live in luxury. When Tim asked my dad if he could marry me, he asked him that question. He also asked my dad if we could live in a trailer on the side of his house. See, because we had big hopes and plans and dreams for our life where we were going to tour the country with his band and then when we were home, we were gonna live on the side of the house. We almost got to camp for our whole life. I don't, I, what happened? He's happy about that. Happy no, we're not camping currently. Now, we weren't trying to live in luxury, but we crunched the numbers and we asked ourselves, can we afford this? Not only you know, to our two incomes and what we make, can we afford it? But what if we have a kid? What, we didn't want to have kids yet, but what if that happened? We made some really practical things. We put them into play and said, can we can even afford this? Is this practical? Tim and I have counseled countless couples who did not ask themselves this question, and they stepped into marriage, and I think that they could have avoided some, some strains, which financial strain can be one of the most straining things on a marriage and they could have avoided it. Now, but beyond that question, when it has to do with finances and if you can afford it, I think a greater question that we need to ask ourselves, more importantly, is are we spiritually eligible? Do you have a solid foundation and devotion to Jesus? When you go through something, do you find yourself running to Jesus or running to your significant other or to something else? Are you spiritually strong? Now, can you get married without some of these practical things in place? Of course you can. But let me tell you from experience that rushing into marriage without being strong spiritually is a recipe for unnecessary problems. And I again echo what Paul says in verse 28. You will have troubles. Marriage is hard enough. You will have troubles and trials and personality conflicts. Why not set yourself up for success by avoiding some of these troubles and stepping in with the best foot forward? And today, whether you're single and called to stay that way, single and working on eligibility, or single eligible but patiently waiting for God to send you your Boaz or your Ruth, I pose the same question to you that I pose to the married folks. Are you committed to the gift of singleness that you've been given? Are you committed, first of all, to calling it a gift and not a curse? Are you committed to giving your time and not being lazy and saying, Jesus, you've given me this. I'm going to look at it as a gift. I'm going to serve you the best way I can in this season that you've given me. Are you willing to say, this isn't just good, but Jesus, I co-sign. This is better. I ask you that today. Now, 
because it's almost time to go, I'm going to invite the band to come as we get ready to close this morning. As we conclude this chat, I want to draw our, our attention to one additional area of commitment. A commitment that's not limited to a certain season of our life, but applies to all of us in the room today. Paul says this in verse 17. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And then he goes on in verse 20, he says, hey, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then he repeats himself again in verse 24, and he says, so brothers, in whichever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. In the middle of encouraging us to stay committed to our season, Paul reminds us that the greatest commitment is to remain committed to the calling. If we dig deeper into the context and truly what Paul was saying, we would understand a little bit more of this because this is kind of one of those moments that the English translation does us dirty. It's like, you didn't translate that well. It means that. I was appalled at this. I just need you to know that. If we go back to the original language in the Greek, we find that Paul wasn't saying remain in whatever socioeconomic status you were in when you became a follower of Jesus, because that's how a lot of people have interpreted this. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't saying if you were single when you were called, remain single. He wasn't saying if you were a slave, which is what he talks about in this portion, then you should remain a slave. No, no, no. He wasn't talking about your socioeconomic status. Instead, what Paul is saying is here is remain in the calling of God. Remain in the calling of God. And he repeats himself three times to reinforce the importance of this statement. Remain in the calling of God. Remain in the calling of God on your life. Remain in God. He's saying no matter what season, no matter what status you find yourself in, single and struggling or in bliss, married or struggling and in bliss, stay committed to that. But above everything else and above everyone else, I want you to remain committed to Christ. Remain in Him. It reminds me of John 15, which says, remain in me and I in you. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. And the reason that Paul repeats himself three times here, and he goes to such great lengths to remind us to remain in Christ is because of the title of this entire series, once again, he shows us that the gospel is the answer. And the gospel today is the answer for our commitment problems. Because long before we ever made a decision to commit to Christ, he made a commitment to you and I. It says in Romans 5, 8, but God shows us his love his deep and sacrificial love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While I was still a sinner, while I was distant and hostile and living my Corinthian type of life, Jesus said, I'm gonna show you my great love and my great commitment to you. I'm gonna go to the cross for you. I'm gonna shed my blood and I'm gonna make a way for you to come in close. He shows us his great commitment and now in response, he invites us 
to be fully committed to Him. Once again, the gospel is the answer. How do you remain committed to being single in that season, although it's difficult? Remain in Him. How do you remain faithful in your marriage that maybe is difficult and there's trial and there's been a different chaos of things going on? How do you remain committed? Remain in Him. He is the answer for every single season, every single thing that we face. Jesus is the answer. Come on, let's pray this morning. Jesus, we thank you. No matter what season we find ourselves in this morning, I thank you that you are the answer. So right now, I even, I pray over the married couples this morning. I pray over those who maybe need to make a fresh commitment within their marriage. I pray you would speak to their hearts. I pray that they would begin to see their marriage as a gift. And I pray right now over the single people in our room, I pray that they would not look at it as a curse, but I pray that they would see it as a gift and that your sustaining love is in the midst of that season. We thank you, Jesus. I pray you would speak to hearts this morning. And lastly, this morning, I wanna pray for those of you who need to make a commitment to Christ. Maybe that's a fresh commitment or it's for the first time. The truth is Jesus has given us a lot of gifts, but the greatest gift above everything else is the gift of salvation. And that comes through knowing him. So this morning with all boldness, if that's you, if you need to make a fresh commitment to Christ or you may need to do that for the first time, I wanna know who I'm praying with. And I wanna invite you just to lift your hand and identify yourself so I can pray with you today, wherever you are, right over there, amen. See you right over there. Anybody else? All right, wherever you're at in the room, if you need to make that commitment, we wanna pray with you today, but we don't want you to pray alone. So every single one of us is going to pray this prayer, a commitment to Christ. We're all gonna lift up our voices with you. Say, everybody say, Jesus, I make a commitment today. I give you my life. Thank you for giving yours for mine. I receive you as my savior to walk in your ways and be your disciple. And I make this commitment for life until I see you face to face in eternity. In Jesus name. Come on, can we celebrate with those making that commitment today? Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.